Welcome to Ambushed. <laughs> this is my 101st episode. I didn't even realize it, but the last one I did, Bring Out the Oreos, was number 100. I feel like that's a big milestone, isn't that? But this is 101, and we're going to call this one uh, Pilgrim There Is No Path, because I want to share with you something that happened to me last week, my reflections about it, and then we're going to dismantle a Bible verse that may be used in such a way that it's more harmful than good. You know, what I usually like to do. Anyways, my name is John. I was trained as a pastor, and I use this as a way of trying to do something interesting and good for people that, I don't know, maybe they're kind of tired with the normal Christian talk or Bible study. So I usually make this into something where I try to explore an idea or go something a little further with something I've been learning and then maybe invite you along that learning journey as well. Now, let me say just a few things. <clears throat> uh, thank you for anyone listening. I It's kind of a privilege that anyone would think that a fool like me actually has something worthwhile to say or worthwhile to listen to. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. So thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for the people that support me on Patreon. I know I'm not the best at making it <laughs> an amazing thing, but it helps this happen, this right here. So that's good. I have been challenging myself to do 100 Days of Theology on Instagram. So go and look that up, look that up at that John Chafee. And what I've been doing is just making three to four minute-ish videos every single day that just explores another theological idea from a brand new angle, or maybe not a brand new angle, but from a different angle. And we've shifted. At first, I did some basic ideas, groundwork, and then we did Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor from World War II. And now we've shifted, shifted into... Carl Barth and some of the things that he said. And then we have down the road a f quite a number of other famous people that we will reference. So give that a check. But then I also caught wind that there is uh, a gathering of people out in Michigan at the University of Michigan. What up? Who are actually listening to this. Hopefully um, you enjoy it. Hopefully you get something good out of this. I've uh, gotten a chance to text or tweet at some of you, and that's been kind of fun. So keep doing that. Uh, I know that I've also got a number of people listening in, surprisingly, up in Washington, the state, obviously around Philly where I'm at, but even over in the UK, I have the ability to look that up, and that just kind of blows my mind. So that's cool. But this is episode 101. This one's called pilgrim, there is no path. So if you're ready, let's do it. I uh, want to share with you again something that happened last week, my reflections on it, and then we're going to break down a Bible verse that I think it might be actually used in a abusive way. And let's try to see if we can wrangle it around into a more helpful manner. You feel me? All right. So 
in an earlier episode, we talked about uh, Gandalf and Rafiki and Yoda and sages and how Jesus was a figure who was like that, but he happened to be God incarnate. And so he came among and he just spoke these bewildering parables and sage-like wisdom that just blew the minds of the people then and continues to challenge us now, right? So there's this ongoing idea kind of since that episode that we need sorcerers, we need wizards, right? We need people that know how to speak the right words at the right time to help break the curse that's holding us back from thriving. And throughout history, there have often been people that do that but it's almost as though they have to do it in creative or curious ways. Because sometimes if you hit an issue or a topic or a problem like too directly, you know, some people get really angry. And so you kind of have to sneakily work around and say the thing that helps people dismantle their chains or their idols, right? But anyways, we need mentors right? We need sages. We need Gandalfs or Rafikis or Yodas in our lives. Just people that can be founts of wisdom that just drop things to us. But in the West, uh, they're not really a commonplace. We don't have them in an official role quite the same way. It's not valued in the same sense as past generations, probably since the Enlightenment correct? We have focused on measurable data to the exclusion of wisdom. And wisdom and data are both, I guess you could say knowledge, but they're different types of knowledge. And there's something that happens when for a couple hundred years, you emphasize measurable data for unmeasurable wisdom. And so when you have a couple hundred years since the Enlightenment where people don't know how to trust or cultivate wisdom, you have some serious problems with what humanity has become as a result of not having said wisdom or knowing how to cultivate it or where to find it or have people that are known for that role of being wise, right? But this leads us to following the latest fad, right? The latest guru, the latest best-selling author on the Barnes & Noble bookshelf or on Amazon. This person seems to say everything as exactly as we need it. It's like, well, sometimes, sometimes it's good to pay attention to whoever's the popular teacher at the moment, such as Brene Brown. I think she says some wonderful, fantastic things that all humans need to dwell on. But then there are other people that are just going to be flashes in the pan, you know? They're just going to be there and then gone because they touch on something, but they don't quite have the depth that they could, right? So, let's talk about the Jesus tradition, right? And there's generally three large branches. There's Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, right? Now, these three branches all 
know the parables. They know Jesus as a, a traveling itinerant rabbi who challenged and inspired and did so much in the role of a rabbi, right? But in the Jesus tradition, there's always been this understanding that you need to have a wise mentor. With priests and with prophets, rabbis and apostles, each of them had a a way of mentoring their successors, of passing on their verbal knowledge to the next generation. And that's, as I said, that's something we don't quite have in the West. Sometimes people are accidentally role models, such as coaches or I guess you could say pastors, but also drill sergeants, right? So all of these, the role isn't completely gone, but they're kind of hidden within these other spheres of life. But there are some people who take it upon themselves to make it their whole gift to give to the world, to be these wise, sage mentors that can help you and I riff out the issues of our lives, right? This has come to be known as, quote, spiritual direction. Now, Catholics have held on to it more than the other branches of Protestants and Eastern Orthodox. But others, Protestants and Eastern Orthodox, they just call it by a different name when they do it. Maybe they call it discipleship. Maybe they call it mentoring. But it, I'm not sure if they quite get to the same understanding that maybe our Catholic brothers and sisters do. So about two years ago, I went to this place called Warnersville Jesuit Retreat Center. And the Jesuits are an order of Catholics that were started back in the 1500s by Ignatius of Loyola. He was a former military man, took a cannon to the legs, shattered his legs. He was there in a hospital. And while in the hospital, completely changed his life. He read a biography of the life of Jesus, and then he started reading about the other saints and mystics and misfits and holy fools of the church, and he said, I want to be like them. And then it spawned him or spurred him on into this really revolutionary life during the Reformation. So when Martin Luther was saying the church needs to change, He, as a Catholic, was also saying the same thing, but he stayed Catholic. He's like, we got to change this. We need to update. We need to reform. But I emailed them, and they set me up with a Jesuit priest there named Father Frank. And so last week, I went and sat with him for about two hours on their large, really scenic portico that overlooks the trees as they're starting to change color. And so he and I just sat for two hours kind of doing autobiographical stuff and asking questions back and forth about whether or not it would be a good enduring relationship to meet up with once a month. But he's probably in his 60s and he was funny, but he also shared about how he used to live in Chile in South America, how he spent a lot of time doing work down there as a Jesuit, as a a person in the order of Ignatius of Loyola. But it was really nice to be able to talk with someone and I didn't have to keep 
explaining terms or references to him because he knew it all. As somebody who has taken spiritual direction as his full task in life, he was well-versed in all this stuff, but he also was well-versed in how to listen and to pay attention to what spirit was saying in the moment. So we had such a great conversation, and it was bouncing back and forth. And I pulled out my journal because he started dropping these single sentences. So I was like, oh, that's gold. And I'd write that down. He'd drop another, oh, that's gold. And I'd write that one down. And then he said this, pilgrim, there is no path. Paths are made by walking. And he was quoting Antonio Machado, who wrote this famous poem in Spanish. And maybe I'll link the whole thing in the description to this. But the poem just kind of bounces around on that idea. Pilgrim or traveler or sojourner, there is no path. You make the path by walking it. And that just kind of floored me. It kind of made me stop. Because back in 2015, I hiked the Appalachian Trail. And you start at one mountain, Springer Mountain, and you finish at another mountain north in fact, 2,189 miles north of there in Maine, Katahdin. And you go from Georgia to Maine. Just walk north every single day. That's your only task. Try to hit 20 miles a day if you can. Stop and filter water. Set up camp at the end of every day. And you repeat that for about five to six months. Boom. But here's the difference. Is I, I paused him. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. The, the thing, though, with the Appalachian Trail is you have a path. You're actually walking in the pathway that thousands of other people have done, maybe even hundreds of thousands of other people since it was started, the Appalachian Trail. The trail is maybe at most three feet wide. Sometimes it's wider than that, but I mean... You walk over hills and mountains and valleys and through rivers, through swamps pretty much, over grasslands, through fields, all of it. And it's just absolutely gorgeous on the good days and it's absolutely horrible on the bad days when there's bad weather. However, there's a path that you're following. But that's the difference between hiking the AT and walking through life is that on the AT, there is a path, and you know you have to walk north. And it's easy to walk north because there's only two directions to walk on the trail, either forward or backwards. And it's pretty easy to know when you're walking in the wrong direction. You just wake up and you know, I already walked from that direction, so I have to go that way. But in life, it's very different. And Father Frank brought that out. He said, listen, we all know the start and finish that we're dealing with, but we don't know the terrain in between. You don't know if there's going to be mountains or valleys or swamps or fields or cows or fellow travelers, but we're not left alone. And he said, all of us at least have a compass that can tell us to generally keep walking in the right direction, even though we're making the path as we go. And man, I thought that was a perfect 
metaphor for life and even for where I am right now. Trying to figure out what spirit wants us to do next is a, it's a skill that all of us have to develop, all of us have to work on, all of us have to cultivate. But pilgrim, there is no path. Paths are made by walking. And no one can walk your path for you. And you can't even walk your path. No, wait. You can't walk someone else's path. And they can't walk the path for you. Each of us have to make the path ourselves. And I thought that was so good. Because the AT... Life is like the AT, but without a path. We know the mountains, but the route we don't know. For, for that, we simply need to trust and follow our own internal compass. In a previous episode, I talked about how Bonaventure liked to talk about... He was a Franciscan theologian from the 1200s-ish, and he said that God is both Alpha and Omega, and that makes God, or the path, the journey of life, he said, somewhat into a circle, because you leave God, you walk away from God, you return back to God, and then you come to realize at the end, the Alpha is the Omega, and you're like, oh my goodness. But you see, on the AT, your Alpha, if you're walking northbound, is Springer Mountain, and your Omega, your end point, is... Katahdin, but they're both mountains. And it's another thing to realize the starting mountain of your life and then knowing what the ending mountain of your life is, but have no idea exactly what the route will look like between those two. We all start in God and we finish in God, but we don't know what the path is like in between. Okay. So with that metaphor in mind, all of us have to cultivate that internal compass. All of us have to start to pay attention to it. We all have to listen to it more and more for direction. And a spiritual director is really, they're not telling you where to walk, but they're just constantly pointing you back to the compass that's telling you the general right direction to head again. And so spiritual directors, they just point you back to what you have within you the skill set, or the ability to listen to spirit within you. Okay, but here's the thing. And now we're going to talk about this Bible verse that I think, as I looked at it more and more, I started to realize maybe this is taken out of context. So what happens if you don't know you have a compass, an inner compass? Well, that means you're probably going to wander a lot between the two mountains of your lives, the starting mountain and the finishing mountain. You're just going to wander, maybe pathetically, maybe gloriously, and it will be a spectacle for other people to watch your mindless wandering. But you're also going to walk into some danger. You might even repeat some of the same problems, walk through the same swamps, have to cross the same valleys over and over and over because... Maybe you were never taught that you have an inner compass that can maybe help direct where you should be going. That's one thing. But it's one thing to not know that you have a compass or not be taught 
that you have one. It's another thing to be taught to distrust your internal compass. And that's something completely else. What do you do if you've been taught to distrust it? And when I hear that question, my mind goes to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet of the Old Testament. And there is a number of times when he has these poems all throughout, but there's something else going on because he's also having this constant dialogue back and forth, especially in chapter 17. So let's hear this. In seven, chapter 17, there's a single sentence that goes like this. The heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure who can understand it. And you might have heard that sentence being thrown at you. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it. And being interpreted in such a way that you should never trust your heart. That it's constantly lying to you. That it's deceiving you. That it's always deceptive. Okay. What do you do if you've been taught that you should not trust your inner compass? Because heart, in the Hebrew scriptures, the heart is the organ of spiritual perception. It's not the the main organ of the cardiovascular system, although in the medical sense, that's what it is. But in the theopoetic sense, the heart is something other. It's something at the core of you that that can feel when something's right or wrong. It's something other. But here's the thing. I said that in Jeremiah, he often has these debates back and forth with God. And actually, that's what happens in this chapter. Let's start at verse 5. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it through to to verse 10. And then we're going to see. It goes like this. It starts like this. Verse 5, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Let's break that down. (laughs) Cursed is the one whose heart only trusts or only draws strength from not spirit. Because flesh in the scriptures isn't necessarily about trusting physical things. It's, it's Flesh is often put in contradistinction or as an either or. You're, you're either listening to spirit or flesh, or let's word it like this. You're either listening to spirit or not spirit. And so let's read it like that. Cursed is the one who tra- trusts only in not spirit, who draws strength from mere not spirit, whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. Hmm. They will dwell in parched places of the desert. They will wander in those places over and over and over again. In a salt land where no one lives. Verse 7, but... Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. Blessed is the person who trusts spirit. 
They will be like a tree planted by the water. See, rather than by the wastelands. That sends its roots out by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. It get, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. That also sounds like the New Testament. People that listen to spirit will, will bear fruit. But then, in the translation I have here, that's where the quotation marks end. As if to say the Lord has now stopped sp- speaking. So now it's Jeremiah speaking who says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? This is the weeping prophet lamenting about his own heart. Not necessarily making a a judgment statement about all people's hearts at all times. Because we've already made the distinction that God says, cursed is the person that that listens to not spirit, but blessed is the person that listens to spirit. So here's Jeremiah lamenting like a weeping prophet and poet saying, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Verse 10, quotation marks come back and now it's God speaking. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds are deserve, end quote. The Lord is the one who understands the heart. Although Jeremiah laments in his heart, thinking that it's deceitful to him above everyone else, the Lord speaks back and says, oh, but I understand your heart. And I understand that your heart has the ability to listen to spirit or to not spirit, and I will make sure you will get (laughs) in accordance to what you listen to. God says, I will make sure that if you listen to spirit, you will bear the good fruit. You will be like a tree planted by water, and I will make sure that if you do not listen to spirit with your heart, that you will be like a dried up bush in the middle of a wasteland, That you will be like wandering in the desert where no one else lives. You will be deprived of life and thriving. And so really then, God becomes the arbiter or the, the, mm, I don't want to say judge, but the assessor of whether or not your heart is listening to spirit or not listening to spirit. And it sounds as though at this point in Jeremiah's life, his heart isn't necessarily listening to spirit as well as it could. That doesn't mean to say that the heart is always deceitful, just that it has the capacity to listen to the wrong compass or to a faulty compass. You feel me? Now we're starting to get into something completely other that actually says you and I have a compass that can be listened to. And spirit is like the magnet to that proper compass. And so then life becomes a task of learning how to listen with our heart to the spirit that's guiding the good compass that will not 
let us wander completely alone in the desert where no water or thriving or bearing fruit happens. You see, this passage, I wonder, um, sometimes it's used in such a way to say, don't listen to your heart, but listen to this other person over here. And I, I kind of want to say, okay, don't listen to my heart. You want me to listen to the words of someone else who also has a deceitful heart. It's like, okay, so now we're getting nowhere when we say everyone's hearts are always corrupt all the time. No. And then it's just a matter of, oh, you want me to distrust my inner compass and listen to what you're telling me your compass is telling me to do? Rather than having a spiritual director who says, I'm not going to tell you what my compass tells you to do. I'm going to instead encourage your heart and your soul and your mind to listen to the spirit within you as your own compass about what your path should look like. Because again, the Appalachian Trail, we walk on somebody else's path. Benton Mackay invented the idea for the Appalachian Trail 80, 85 years ago. We're walking his path, and it's a great path. It's really a good one. It's quite scenic, and there's beautiful things and transformation that can happen along it. However, it's another thing to go back to the words of Antonio Machado as he says, Pilgrim, there is no path. Paths are made by walking. Walk your own path. There's even a phrase on the Appalachian Trail that says if you are on the trail and you're trying to tell someone else how to do their hike, there's a phrase, HIO, which is an acronym for hike your own hike. So when somebody starts giving you too much unsolicited advice, you can say, hike your own hike, man. That's your path. That's your hike. I'm going to walk the Appalachian Trail as I see best for me. And there's a sense of the spiritual path is kind of like that. The Jesus tradition is actually very much like that. Walk your own path. No one else can walk it for you. You can't walk someone else's path for them. Learn to cultivate a sensitivity to your own inner compass and make sure that it's listening to spirit rather than flesh, or let's say, rather than not spirit. Now, there's something to be said that when you're listening to the right compass, when you're listening to your heart and your inner compass that's actually listening to spirit with a capital S, it will probably always be leading you towards the decision for greater health. So anything that is a decision towards unhealth is probably not approved by spirit. Anytime that you are making a decision towards trying to be more holy rather than unholy, that's probably approved by spirit. Anytime you make a decision towards greater wholeness and having an integrated life with integrity, that's probably approved by spirit. Or growth, any decision that you make towards trying to grow further, that's approved by spirit. Or towards greater love of self and neighbor and God, that's probably approved by spirit, definitely. But you see, the thing that's 
not spirit is any decision or any listening to a compass that allows you or wants you to walk towards unhealth, unholiness, towards brokenness, towards regression, towards apathy or hate of someone else. All of those things are inherently anti-spirit. Don't listen to that compass because cursed is the one who trusts in not spirit, who draws strength from not spirit, whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. But to every person that learns to cultivate and listen with their heart to the spirit that's guiding their inner compass, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, but never fails to bear fruit. All right. You still with me? Are we good? (laughs) This is kind of a groundbreaking one. I think for me personally, the idea of there's a, a sense of like you have to listen to your own inner compass. And a lot of us have been taught to deny or repress or shove down when our heartbeat increases, when we feel like we are being challenged. Or let's say when we feel like we're being stifled, that can also do it. We get irritated. A lot of us have been taught to distrust our feelings and our feelings are good guides. They shouldn't have the final say all the time, but maybe the feelings that we have are actually nudges from the spirit with a capital S trying to tell us to pay attention to our inner compass and where it's telling us to go. Because all of us, excuse me, all of us should make a conscious effort to listen to the inner compass when it's telling us it's time to get healthy again. It's time to chase after holiness again. It's time to be whole again. It's time to grow or or it's time to love more or differently than we did before. So this whole passage, the heart is deceitful above all things, it's actually in the middle of a dialogue between Jeremiah, who's lamenting his own heart, and God, who's telling him, don't worry about that. Your heart can listen to the right things. Let your heart listen to spirit. And then, as I said before, in Jeremiah 17, it's God saying, I will make sure that you will get what your inner compass, <laughs> if you listen to it, uh, is supposed to give you. So, man, what do we do with this? Well, I think it means we have a little bit more courage. Maybe it means we've got a little bit more positive self-worth or positive self-evaluation or, or compassion. Maybe it means... We should distrust other people that tell us to distrust us. Maybe it means we shouldn't so blindly follow other people 
who are very adamant about trying to tell us what we should be doing with our lives because they've got a different inner compass. And who says that they're listening to the right compass? Who knows? That person, even though very polished and made up and looking good, maybe on their heart's compass, they're listening to not spirit. And so for them to tell you to distrust your heart as it is listening to spirit is actually quite abusive. You feel me? So, this sounds potentially heretical, but I don't think it is because I think I just laid the groundwork. Trust your heart when it's listening to spirit. Distrust your heart when it's not listening to spirit. Cultivate that inner compass. And if you need to, reach out and look it up online. See if there are some spiritual directors in your local area. Maybe it's in a religious institution. That's fine. Or it could be at a retreat center like what I found. That's great. But I think we've got to change the vocabulary or change the way that we talk about heart. We need to change the way... Man, maybe we're not supposed to despair of our inner compass. But maybe we are supposed to be a little discerning. That might be the best word. Let us all learn how to discern the right path for us and even have the courage to walk our path for ourselves when other people tell us to walk the path that they've done. So let me finish with this. Pilgrim, there is no path. Paths are made by walking. May you this week pay attention to your inner compass. May you let your heart listen to spirit rather than not spirit. And may you always walk in the direction of greater health, holiness, wholeness, growth, and love. And may grace and peace be with you. We'll catch you next time.